This is a Sunday talk by Droll titled Thought, recorded December 19, 1993, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Lao Tzu, who is the founder of Taoism, writes When your discernment penetrates to the four quarters, are you capable of not knowing anything? That sounds like a weird thing to say. In other words, when your discernment, which is something about understanding, penetrates to the four quarters, the whole universe, can you not know anything? Quite mysterious. Let's see what some of the other <clears throat> mystics of the great tradition have said about this. And maybe it'll shed some light on it. This is very important, by the way, why at the center we like to read mystics from different traditions. You read uh, one tradition, and it sounds very mysterious, but as you read across the traditions, you find different aspects presented about the same thing, and then you begin to understand, oh, that's what he's talking about. Here's the Upanishads, the great classics of Hindu mysticism. Brahman, Brahman is the reality, the ultimate reality, Brahman comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. He is known in the ecstasy of an awakening which opens the door of life eternal. <clears throat> so reality, Brahman, ultimate reality, cannot be known by thought. It can be known in some sense, but not by thought. Somehow beyond thought in what he calls here an ecstasy of awakening. Ibn Arabi, who's a sheikh of sheikhs among Sufi or Islamic mystics, writes, Knowledge of reality cannot be arrived at by the intellect by means of any rational thought processes. For this kind of perception comes only by divine disclosure. So again, this sort of knowledge of ultimate reality here, you can't get through reason through the intellect, through what we normally think of as knowledge in this culture. It only comes by way of divine disclosure. Isn't that another way of saying an ecstasy of awakening? According to the Buddha, this applies even to spiritual thoughts as they are expressed in spiritual teachings. He talks about his own teachings. He says, these teachings are only a finger pointing toward noble wisdom. They are intended for the consideration and guidance of the discriminating minds of all people. But they are not the truth itself, which can only be self-realized within one's own deepest consciousness. Do you see how you, you read across the traditions and, boy, these people are, seem to be saying the same thing. Even though they're from very different times, very different places, very different cultures. So now we begin to understand why Lao Tzu wrote that. When your discernment penetrates the four quarters, can you not know anything? Can thought stop? Can it be beyond thought? Why? Why can't thought grasp ultimate reality? It certainly runs counter to what materialism says. In our culture, in materialist culture, the only knowledge there is is knowledge by thought. Even raw experience is not knowledge. 
It's only when it fits into a, a theory, a thought scheme, then it becomes knowledge. For instance, you go out and you look at a pond with sticks coming out of it, and you'll see the stick, when it hits the water, it suddenly bends. That's your experience, your visual experience. It's deceived you, according to modern science, because, of course, the stick doesn't bend because light's reflected and refracted. We look up at the sky, and it looks like the sun's going around the Earth. That's false knowledge, according to modern science. Again, our senses deceive us. Knowledge comes through thought, through theory. But these mystics are saying, if you want to know the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality of this whole cosmos, and more importantly, your own situation in it, who you are, where you came from, what are you doing here, where are you going, that knowledge can only come from some kind of knowing that is beyond thought. But why should that be? Meister Eckhart, who's a great Christian mystic, gives us a clue. He says the divine being, again, that's the Christian term for the ultimate reality, the divine being is equal to nothing, and in it there is neither image nor form. Therefore, when the soul contemplates what consists of images, whether that be of an angel's image or its own, there is for the soul something lacking. Even if the soul contemplates God, the soul lacks something. But if all these images are detached from the soul, and it contemplates only the simple one, then the soul's naked being finds the naked formless being of the divine unity. We come full circle. This is really what Lao Tzu is saying. A Christian mystic from 14th century and a Chinese mystic from 2000 B.C. Any thought form, not just reason, not just a theoretical thought as we think of it, any image that we contemplate. Now, this is very important for us to uh, pay attention to closely, because a lot of people on a spiritual path hear a teaching like, oh, Brahman's beyond thought. And they think, well, I don't have to do any intellectual thinking. I don't have to read any philosophy or think about it. But they don't realize, we're not just talking here about intellectual thinking. We're talking about all thinking. We're talking about that chatter that goes on in your mind all day long. And to know Brahman, to know ultimate reality, to know the great Tao, you somehow have to get beyond that. You can't know reality by thought because reality is formless, as Meister Eckhart said, that formless divine being. In Taoism, the great Tao is described as the uncarved block, that is the block without form, out of which all form is carved, so to speak, or sometimes as the void, the void out of which all forms are produced, out of which the myriad creatures are produced. Thinking produces form. Thinking is form. In some sense, then, not in an ultimate sense, in some sense, then, form is an obstacle to knowing formlessness. If you're always looking for the formless through form, how are you going to see the formless? If you're looking for that 
clear light that has no color, and you're always looking through different colored glasses, you put on, you know, rose-tinted ones, and then you put on green ones and so forth, you're never going to see clear light. You're always going to see the light colored by the glasses that you're wearing. But it's so hard to get beyond form, to have the mind completely formless, that it's very difficult for anybody to follow the most direct teaching of all the mystical traditions, and that is just realize formlessness. Just do it. Their teachers, that is the basis of their teaching. Just realize the self. Realize that the self is no essential form. So that's not very helpful for most of the stages of the spiritual path. But there's another way to go about it, which 99.9% .9 of all spiritual seekers from the dawn of time have gone about it, and that is that if we don't have an immediate perception of this mysterious formlessness, this empty void and so forth, what we do have a perception of is form. It's with us all the time. So let's investigate form. <clears throat> all forms. Thought forms, the form of this cup here, the form of this blackboard. What are forms? Where do they come from? What are they made of? Well, let's, again, check the great traditions and see what they say. Lao Tzu says, The nameless was the beginning of heaven and earth. The named was the mother of the myriad creatures. In Chinese, that idiom, myriad creatures, means all forms. It doesn't just mean, you know, cute little bunnies and stuff running around. The nameless was the beginning of heaven and earth. The named was the mother of the myriad creatures. This may sound strange, but if you grew up in any sort of Christian tradition, this will sound more familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Lao Tzu saying its name somehow makes forms. John saying the word. Similar thing. According to Kashmir Shovism, which I said earlier is a form of Hinduism, before their manifestation, all the Shastras, that is the sacred scriptures, which are but thoughts expressed as speech, like the manifest universe itself, which forms the object of that thought and speech, in other words, all the sacred scriptures, all thoughts, all speech, and even the objects that we talk about, all of that existed in the as yet unuttered thought and experience of the supreme deity, in the form of the all-transcending word, the paravak, that's the Sanskrit term, the paravak that is beyond all objective thought and speech in every one of their forms. Now, this is quite astonishing, that the whole universe comes about by the paravak, the all-transcending word. But it's just what John said, didn't he? That word which is somehow in the deity, in the supreme being, in the ground reality, already before it's uttered, so to speak. Ananda Moyamai, who's a great Hindu mystic, she says it very simply. This world has been created by a mere stroke of God's imagination. 
Look what we're getting at here. Name, word, thought, imagination. What they're saying is the world of form is created by this word, which is a verbal expression of thought. So basically it's by, you could say, the thought of God. But what is thought? I want you to try an experiment. I want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to think of something, anything fairly concrete. Now, as your eyes close, as you're thinking this, I'm going to ask you some questions, and we'll talk about it. Does whatever you're thinking about exist out there somewhere, objectively? Like, you might think a stone exists out there. Or is it imaginary? Does it have any existence apart from your own mind? In other words, if your mind withdrew its attention from it or something, would it continue to exist someplace? Or is it totally dependent for its existence immediately, right now, in every moment, on your mind, on something you're doing with your mind? What's it made of? Not the thing that your thought is referring to, but the thought itself. What is it made of? And finally, is that thought that's in your mind right now, is it real? Okay, open your eyes. Let's see who, who thought of a thing and had some answers to those questions. A boot. A boot. Okay, so what was the boot made of? Leather, rubber. What was the thought of the boot made of? Well, close your eyes now, go back and check. Don't think about it, go back and look and see, directly. I see a shadow of it. I can't quite see the boot. Okay, so whatever you got in there, what was that made of? I don't know how to answer that. Do you okay. mean like memory? It could be a memory. Well, memory of the thing that you're... Like if you picture an object, mm -hmm. is it, what is it made up of? Memory? The memory itself. Yeah. Uh, as you're experiencing it. made up. Exactly. What did you have? What, what did you my think of? My teddy bear that I had since I was two. A teddy bear. That's in my room. Okay. So while you were thinking of it, what was that memory made out of? Mm -hmm. Did that memory exist apart from your mind in any sense? Well, it's out there in the world. If I go back in my room, I can look at it and see now, that image. Now, now, this is what we're very careful about. See, this is how thought deceives us. The memory of the teddy bear, where does that exist? In my brain. In your brain? Yeah. Can you see your brain? No. Can you... <clears throat> I mean, this is a thought you have here that mm -hmm. somebody told you. That's, that's where memories are, are contained in brains. But this is why I say this is what looking your own experience is about. This is why you're your own authority. Close your eyes again. Remember your teddy bear. What you're experiencing right now, does it have any kind of existence or reality apart from your mind? No. It's okay. my imagination. Ah, very good. It's created by your imagination, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not real. Anybody have a different experience here? Anybody have an experience of something that was real and not imaginary? 
A horse. I was thinking of a horse, and I couldn't like of like when you ask the question, does it exist? Even if you're not thinking about it, and it's still would. Well, okay. Were you thinking about a specific horse? In a way, I pictured a horse in my head because you asked. But not a horse that you've known before, particularly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a new horse, right? Or a horse you never met before. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so where does that horse exist? It existed in my mind. Right. But I guess I was thinking of the horse has a life of its own without me. So it would still exist, even if I wasn't thinking about it. It would? I mean, for instance, right now you're thinking about the horse. Okay. When you stop thinking about the horse, is it going to be still running around in your mind someplace? No. I guess I was thinking more in general, like horses or something. Horses. Has anybody ever seen horses? I don't mean plural horses. I mean the general horse. You have? Through, this, through your sense? Yeah. yeah I've, seen, I've seen a horse. A horse. But have you ever seen the category of horse? Category of horse, no. That's a mental construction, isn't it? The category of horse. Who else had some experience with this? Yeah. I thought of a rabbit, and the only thing I could think of that was made of was energy. My thought was made of energy. So thought's a kind of energy. That's interesting. (laughs) No, it's sometimes described this way. If you read Tibetan traditions, for instance, they'll talk about energy and Westerners sometimes interpret this in the materialist meaning of energy, as though there's some energy out there apart from the mind. But they're really talking much more what you're describing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if the horse was a real horse that she knows? Does that make any difference? Well, this is the question of memory, the teddy bear. There are two things going on here. At least this is the way we normally think about it. There is the teddy bear sitting at home, or the real horse that she knows, you know, that, that's, I don't know, up on a farm someplace. And then there's the thinking about it, the memory of it. You see what I mean? That's what we're interested in investigating. Whether there's a real horse, quote unquote, out there or not, we want to look directly at that thought, at that memory, at what's going on in the mind. So that's what we're trying to investigate. What is that made out of? How does that come about? Does anybody disagree with this conclusion that it's imaginary, not real? That whole category of things. That happens in the mind. Thought forms. We well, might just go. Um, yeah. The only thing is, uh, uh, in a way, are you taking it for granted that it's not there? Like, let's say I saw like a Madras plaid ball. Okay. Oh wow! And, <laughs> He's got a great mind, doesn't he? If, if uh, just because I open my eyes and I'm not imagining the ball, and if I close my eyes and I can see the ball again after a while, it mm-hmm. forms again. Right. Does that mean that I'm becoming aware of it again, or does that mean I am creating it? Good question. What do you think? You're the one who's doing it. Um, I, I'm i not sure. I mean, because I can't really say whether whether it is something that my mind is forming or if it's something that... It's discovering. Yeah. You see, this is exactly the kind of questions I want to raise for you. Mm-hmm. We take our thoughts so much for granted, this whole process that goes on, that has such... Uh, dominates our life so much, and we never bother to actually get into investigate what is going on here. This is how you investigate. Who am I? What am I doing here? Just that kind of thing. Where does it come from? 
But when I say it's not real, I don't mean it doesn't appear. Obviously, something appeared in, in your mind, something appeared in consciousness. When we say in this culture something isn't real, we usually mean it doesn't exist apart from the mind. You mean, like, not... Right, sensory. Because what I was saying is basically, um, you know, if I close my eyes and I'm seeing the ball, I open my eyes and I'm seeing this. Uh -huh. You know, when I close my eyes, I cannot guarantee that that you have physical form. Oh, when he's I way ahead of us, isn't he? I guarantee that the, that the ball inside doesn't have physical form. You're absolutely right. I mean, Just because you can't I guarantee. Right. This raises a question. What we usually do is make this distinction, however, between mental forms, thought forms, we could call them, and sensory forms. And so it's all very well and good to say, well, thought forms are imaginary, that they don't exist apart from the mind. But what about sensory forms? What about the world of cups and glasses and rugs and floors and solid walls and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, go ahead. When you ask the question whether we agree that's, that that's imaginary as opposed to real, I'm not really sure what, what you mean by real and imaginary. <laughs> well, how would you use it, those two terms, imaginary and real? I don't know. I mean, after I mean after being exposed to some of your teachings... I <laughs> Good. Abin Arabi, the great Sufi I talked about, he said this whole path leads to perplexity. <laughs> so I'm doing very well. If you've been following my teachings and you've become perplexed. <laughs> right now I'm using these two terms, real and imaginary, more or less as they're used in our common culture. When we say to somebody, oh, that's not real, that's just in your mind. Do you know what I mean? That's imaginary. Most people in this culture look at their dreams as being something imaginary. Oh, you just imagined it. It's not real. Meaning it doesn't exist out there whether or not you're observing it or whatever. In other words, this culture's definition of reality usually implies that what is real will exist apart from the mind, apart from consciousness. You see what I mean? So it's material. Yes, in our culture we would say it's material. It's out there. It's objective. It exists subjectively. It's not subjective. It's not dependent on my anything I'm doing subjectively. It just exists out there. Right? I'm not saying this is true or not. I'm just saying this is how we normally use those words, real and imaginary. Okay. But before we get to examine sensory forms, let's go back and let's uh, examine this question of how imaginary forms are created before we try and figure out how sensory forms are. Okay? So let's try another experiment. Close your eyes again and think of something again. And now think of it and then don't think of it or switch to thinking about something else and then come back to it. In other words, I'm trying to get you to watch how does the mind produce this? Where does it come from? And then where does it go? Anybody got a clue? Yeah. You just switch your attention. I had been thinking of the pen mm -hmm. in my hand, and then I switched to her teddy bear, mm -hmm. and then I switched to her horse, and it was just switching the attention. 
Okay, switching the attention brings the object in. Does the attention actually create it? Is that the hand that holds the paintbrush, so to speak, the mental paintbrush? the actual attention, or the, the shifting is what I was noting, is how right. it did it. The, um, I would say, I couldn't say attention creates it. That's a mystery to me, where it comes from. This is interesting. The way we normally talk, there has to be something there to give your attention to. So, in the first instant, before attention knows what it's looking for, I mean, how did you pick your teddy bear? It just popped in my head. It was the first thing that popped yeah. in my head. So, did you pick your teddy bear or not? Well, this is a very good question. <laughs> consciously, no. No, consciously, no. Well, what other way could you have picked it? Unconsciously. I mean, it came out uh, of my head. How do you know anything about an unconscious? Oh, I've learned about it and read about it. <laughs> you got a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> but let's get back to your immediate experience. You don't know where it came from. Or how it got there. Or what power produced it. Does anybody... To me, yeah. it seems like I create the image out of this energy. Mm -hmm. And when I switch, it's it seemed like what the first thing I saw got dis just displaced by the other, the second thing. That would, that's how I would describe it. Okay. Where did it go when it got displaced? I was not, I don't know, I wasn't aware. Well, I mean, she would just kind of disappear into space or some, <laughs> some nowhere, nothing. Supposedly it goes into short-term memory, which is kind of a holding area of the brain. Uh, again, this is all thought. you got to investigate by your own experience. Sometimes how we're taught to think itself is the obstacle, and this is a very good example of it. This is something you were taught in school or someplace. This isn't just knowledge native to human beings. Most human cultures would never say anything like that. So somebody taught you this, and I'm not singling you out. We all got taught growing up by our teachers, our peers. We're taught how to think about the world. But when we go investigate, we have to suspend how we've been taught about the world. You see what I mean? You have to doubt it all, and you have to be able to go look and trust your own experience. Really trust your experience. So when we look at our experience, to get to that answer is a long, convoluted theoretical process to get to the answer about it goes into some short-term memory. Do you know what I mean? We're looking for, how would you describe your immediate experience? Where does it come from? Where does it go? Um, it's the second time I thought about it. I mm -hmm. thought it was first my room and then my work space. Mm -hmm. And my room kind of came up to here and then went back in. And the work came out and then went back that way. It's like inside and outside. Ah, okay, it's inside, but in, where's the in? Ooh, this is good. What is the in? Yeah. This is, this is something else, but it, it seemed like it was a use of will. Good, you're getting a little bit ahead. Let's note that one. Although there's this question here. When you do an experiment like that, and I say, think of something, do you really will to think of the teddy bear, or does the teddy bear just come up? But most thoughts, we at least think we will. Let's grant that for a moment before we go any further in that. Okay, so um, then 
let's call this mysterious power the power of imagination. You call it energy. Let's just call it the power of imagination. Let's not try and figure out any right now beyond that. Let's just say one thing we know, it can be done. Right? <laughs> you can all sit here and do it. Somehow, form can come out of formlessness. Where does it go? Somebody said space. It goes in here someplace. There's a very good reason why you can't describe where it comes from and where it goes. It's formless. It doesn't have any form. Form comes out of formlessness. It goes back into formlessness, right? I don't know. It seems like... It seems like when I close my eyes, I don't really try to think of something. I just try to, like, let things appear. Mm -hmm. And my mind forms... So, I mean, like, like I closed my eyes and, like, last I saw a fish mm -hmm. and, like, swam mm -hmm. and then a train. I mean, why, you know, why those two things? And it was just, at first, you know, I sat here and I'm like, I don't see anything. Okay, then I saw right. something. Now, I want you like, to describe that. Now, wait a minute. This is what I'm driving at. Now we're investigating the background, the place where all this comes from. Right. So, I, for this purpose, it doesn't matter whether it's mm. a fish or a train or, right. you know. But what was that when you saw nothing? What's actually there is... I mean, I don't know. It, so it is It is will. You're willing it. Because okay. before and after, okay. there is really nothing. Let's grant that you are for the uh -huh. time being willing it. But this is what I'm interested in. Right. Where does it come from? The before and after. It's nothing. The what? The block. Where does the the uncarved block. From? Yeah. The uncarved block. Before and after. Well, you did describe it. You said it's nothing. Mm -hmm. That's the way of saying formless. It's no right. thing. It has no form. We don't pretend to know what all this is, but we want to have some way of describing it. We say that thought forms are produced by power of imagination, energy. It doesn't matter, but we, we want to have some common terminology so we can talk. It produces this out of nothing, out of something that's formless, that you can't describe. It's like space, maybe, or, or uh, some sort of inwardness. And it brings it up on a kind of screen in this field of consciousness awareness we could call it right i mean is that a working description that matches your experience okay now let's look into this a little bit more carefully what are words whether they're spoken or words in your head for instance bufargo is bufargo a word sure yeah what who said sure i said sure oh it is? What's it mean? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> it's a sound. No, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, because you can, uh, like, sometimes when I write, mm -hmm. I make up words, you know? And, and wh whether it's a, a dictionary word or not, it fits. For some reason, it fits there, so it's a word. So why isn't the flushing toilet a word? What's the sound? He. <laughs> I... No, look, I, I'm not trying uh, to be tricky. I'm not trying to trip anybody up. Usually words, when we say a word is it expresses a thought. Now, yes, you're right. As a writer, within a context, you can sometimes make a sound to vaguely express right. some sort of thought. Or uh, you can have fun with it. The, in the old days, the vaudevillians used to do double talk, you know. But generally speaking, now words are expressions of a thought, right? Isn't that true? Okay. Whether they're spoken speech words or whether they're words that go around in your head, 
But if they're expressions of thought, what is thought itself? Can we have thought without words? Let me put it that way. Has anybody ever had a thought that they couldn't express in words? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah? Okay. Right? Now, there may be two reasons for this. One is you may not know the word. Has anybody had the experience you have a thought and you're trying to express it and and then somebody says the word and you say, that's it. This happens to me all the time because i got limited vocabulary. But there's another kind of thought, as then they had this experience, where there really are no words. Dreams. Dreams. I've had some dreams. It's an experience in a dream that there's really no word to describe. Very good. Very good. No word to describe. So thoughts aren't words. Words are expressions of thoughts, except for a few little exceptions where we're having fun here. But thoughts aren't necessarily words. So what are thoughts? A thought always makes a distinction. It makes some sort of boundary. It creates some sort of form, even a form you couldn't really describe because there's nothing to describe it in terms of. But it's always, a thought always creates some sort of boundary. It may even be a shifting boundary. It may not be a very clear boundary. Does anybody have ever had a thought that isn't, you know, at least that? Boundless thought. <laughs> yeah, well, has anybody ever had a boundless thought? That's a very good question. Wow. I've, yeah. I've felt, I don't know, maybe it's like I've been in a state of like boundless experience that I've attached thought to, maybe. I mean, well, I don't know what the difference is. Ah, it's very possible maybe to have a some sort of experience that then you say, I had a boundless experience. Interesting, though. Let's stop for a minute. Once I say, I've had a boundless experience, I've distinguished that experience from a bounded experience, mm-hmm. haven't I? So it's it's been... Yeah. It's been bounded right. by putting the thought on it, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. I've made a distinction, Right. Can we express any thought without making a distinction? I could put it that way. Even a simple process of naming, it's very interesting. You remember in the Bible that God takes Adam around and he names all the things, all the creatures. This is very common, by the way, in in many mythologies. The way things come about is they're named. If I name cup, just cup, I've distinguished it from everything that is not cup. I don't have to have anything else. I've already made a distinction here, right? You follow that? Okay. So we could call this nonverbal thought, this just this bare making of distinctions, we could call that primal imagination. Okay? Let me just do something here on the blackboard. This is just a sort of a schema of how all this happens. First of all, let's call just formless consciousness. Then let's say what happens is this primal imagination, making distinctions, the power of primal imagination. Then we have mental thought, that is, uh, mental verbal, I guess. 
Well, now let's make it verbal, I know. That is, if the uh, distinctions that are made by primal imagination fall into a category that over the time a culture has developed a language to express, then we can express it in thought to ourselves verbally. And then last we have speech or spoken words, which is communicating that verbal thought. Okay, is that fair? Now, let the blackboard represent formless consciousness. Let the blackboard represent that nothing that you described on either side of when a thought comes, or somebody said space over here. And I'll draw a circle. This will represent any kind of distinction that you would like. Okay. What now is the content of that distinction? What's inside it? Things is outside it. Which is what? In our scheme of things. Space or whatever we're calling it here. <laughs> Formless consciousness. Hmm? Is that true? The inside of the blackboard is still the same stuff as the outside of the blackboard. The form is the distinction, but in a certain sense it hasn't altered the blackboard. The nature, the fundamental nature of the blackboard, right? Let's say I, I'll draw a more uh, recognizable form, hopefully, if I can draw it. Does anybody recognize that? Good. Like who? It's an archetype of a tree. Yeah, an archetype of a tree, right. Okay. Now, what is this tree made of? Well, I can start putting in leaves, right? I can put in some more branches here. I can start putting in bark. No matter what I'm doing, I'm distinguishing. You see that? Distinguishing, 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 distinguishing. But it's always still made of the blackboard. Still made of that formless consciousness. Right? No matter how finely I distinguish, I could get down to molecules and atoms and so forth, I'm still drawing distinctions in formless consciousness. Right? Notice something else about this. In order to have a form, I have to suppress formlessness in a certain way. Do you see what I mean? I can't have, in other words, a blank blackboard and a blackboard with something drawn on it at the same time. I cannot experience total formlessness if I'm experiencing form. That's just another way of saying that. So even though I'm, uh, I'm not changing ultimately the, the nature of the formlessness by imposing distinctions on it, I no longer can experience the formlessness once I've imposed distinctions on it as formless anymore. Now it's got form. Huh? Okay. 
Once an image is created, I can name it. By the primal imagination produces this. Let's say uh, I'm alone, the first time I've ever seen this. So I will call it tree, right? And once tree becomes an element in a shared communal language, and I have the power of speech, then I can communicate it, or the power of writing or something, right? Now, I want you to close your eyes again for a second here. And I'm going to ask you to visualize a person from Alpha Centauri. Okay? Now, people on Alpha Centauri have four arms, very long arms like octopus arms with little suction caps on them. Their bodies are only about three feet high. And they walk on all fours, so to speak, and they one uh, arm goes over the other, and then the other arm goes over the other, and the other arm goes over the other. So they kind of walk like slinkies, if you can imagine that, on these four arms, right? They have only one big eye. And this big eye is on a, on a stalk, and whenever the Alpha Centurion is upside down, the stalk can come around to the top of the body and keep watching. And then when it flips over again, the stalk is then just right side up, right? Hmm. These Alpha Centurions are kind of a shark gray color. Everybody got that? If you touch these Alpha Centurions, their flesh is very spongy and a little bit sticky. They smell something like uh, a glass cleaner. <laughs> right? They don't have any mouths. They have these uh, little, uh, like, portals spaced, oh, every six inches. Little portals all over their body, these little holes, sort of like pockmarked, and they just absorb nutrients from the atmosphere. And they're constantly pulsating. So they're constantly making this sort of multiple hissing sound, very low. Okay, open your eyes. How many people could, you know, imagine a Alpha Centaurian? No problem. Well, most, of, most of you could. Is a lesson of what language is here. You can think of language as a set of instructions to envision a form. We usually think of language as to describe something that's already there. So I might say, uh, what did you see when you uh, went up to Washington? Oh, I saw big mountains and big trees. But even in that situation, what's really happening is the person who's describing Washington is giving a set of instructions to the person who hasn't been to Washington to envision big mountains and big trees, right? When you read a novel, you can see this very clearly. Let's take a completely fictional novel. The novel you could think of as a set of instructions to imagine a world of all sorts of forms. Mm -hmm. 
people and continents and animals and whatever you want, Alpha Centurions if it's a science fiction novel. Right? You can begin to see here as a slight digression why different cultures who have evolved in isolation from each other have very different worldviews and experiences of the world. This certain basic set of instructions gets evolved in this culture and everybody communicates that way and they're all envisioning a common world. And another culture that's had no contact with them, another set of instructions has gotten going and they're all envisioning a completely different world. Remember, tried to read shamanic descriptions of the world, for instance. Very bizarre for us in this culture. Very difficult to follow that set of instructions. The world that is embedded in those instructions. Very difficult for our minds to put that together. It's fighting a different set of instructions. Okay. One more experiment here. Close your eyes. Actually, this gentleman asked me about a bufargo, and I lied to him. I said that it wasn't a word, but a bufargo is a word. Now, I'm going to describe a bufargo. A bufargo is seven mil gems high. It has three zabbats and two lampsons. And it's colored saran. Okay? Open your eyes. Who could follow those instructions? Yes, you would have to then create forms for these sounds to apply to. You could, but you're not really following a set of instructions. Right. You're, everybody would have a different picture. Exactly. Exactly. And it's another very important lesson. Why do we have a language? A common language with common meanings. We would not be societies and communities if we didn't. Everybody would be creating their own world. When we talk about worldviews and paradigms and cultures, keep that in mind. They're very important for human beings. Without them, we are not human beings. We are individual animal organisms. But there's no way to communicate unless we share a set of instructions that tells us how to construct a common world. Otherwise, we won't live in a common world. Notice one other thing here. When you pick up a book from a foreign language, like I don't read Japanese. If I pick up a Japanese text, I cannot follow the instructions. They would still be words, by the way. Learning to follow instructions is essential to being a human being. That's what learning a language means. Learning how to follow a certain set of instructions. It's incredibly difficult, though, because it seems like sometimes even the more you communicate, the less somebody might understand you, like in relationships. <laughs> <laughs> you could just try and try and try to get someone to understand you. And, you know, it's like you have in your mind this idea of what, what something means to you. And Once you start understanding that language is a set of instructions to create a world, then you can actually use that insight to help your communication. Because and then instead of immediately saying, you don't know what you're talking about, Bonnie. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You want to say, what's wrong here? Isn't it that Bonnie's wrong? It's that I can't follow the instructions. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So it's not a question who's right and who's wrong, or even ultimately what's real and what's not. It's a question is, can we create a shared world? We shared distinctions. How, how much can, a, can I expand my imagination in order to understand what somebody else is visioning because their vision is not my vision? That's what compassion is all about. Or let me put that's where compassion begins. Most people think compassion is just a gushy feeling of warmth. But true compassion is very intelligent, and you've put your finger right on it. You've got to be able to, as the Native Americans say, walk in somebody else's moccasins. In imagination, we can never exactly walk in someone else's moccasins. Their experience is different. But we can use that imagination to do just that. And there's no true compassion until you can do that. Very good. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's notice one other thing, though, about this creating distinctions, this primal imagination. Close your eyes one last time. I'm going to give you four things to imagine. The first one is a triangular square. The second one is solid space. The third one is something that is both a wave and a particle. That's for you guys who are into quantum mechanics. The last one is, imagine opening a door that is already open. Could anybody do any of those things? This tells us something about the primal imagination, this act of creating distinctions. It's lawful. There are things you cannot do. Imagination isn't just the ability to just do anything. There are some things you cannot do. This is where, for instance, laws of logic come from. This is where order comes from. This is where harmony comes from, proportion, all those things. This is why in every mystical tradition, to say that the world is not ultimately real, this world of forms or something, is never to say that it's some sort of chaos or whatever. It's very beautiful and orderly, the way a well-written novel is. The basic laws of thought have to do with being unable to create forms that are contradictory to each other. In logical terms, it's the basic thing. Something's either A or not A at any given time. An A can become a not A, but at any given time. There's just a very important thing to remember about imagination and about thought and about form. It is lawful. It follows laws. There's a lot of creativity within the bounds of those laws, but it is not a chaos. Okay, now 
all this time we've been talking about basically mental thought forms. Now let's try and come back to sensory forms. Materialism, our culture's set of instructions, tells us that sensory objects exist out there objectively apart from the mind, apart from this field of consciousness, so to speak, and apart from this power of imagination. They're already there. And we sort of, you know, scan around and they enter into our field of consciousness and then we move around and they disappear, but they're still out there existing that way. And we didn't create them at all. We had nothing to do with creating them. They're just there. This is materialist science, by the way, and of course if you get into quantum mechanics and modern physics, that's no longer true, but that's a whole other digression. Most people in this culture are still following an outmoded set of instructions that come from materialism. So, Okay, they're beyond the mind, they're not mental images, but it's very strange about them that they obey the laws of thought. Otherwise, science would be impossible. It's very strange that in physics, all these existing objects that have nothing to do with imagination and so forth obey mathematical formulas that are all based on the laws of thought. Einstein said the greatest mystery is why mathematics works. Why should some objectively existing world obey the laws of thought so closely that we can send people to the moon, explode atomic bombs. It's phenomenal. Think about that for a minute. Are sensory forms really out there beyond consciousness? Has anybody ever experienced any sensory form outside of consciousness? We may suppose that some material form, as, as people like to call it, is there when we aren't looking or hearing or touching or in some form being in consciousness. We may wish to suppose that, but no one has ever experienced that. Your mind may continue to construct a mental image of that sensory form, but that sensory form is gone just like the mental forms come and go. Your actual experience is that they all are constantly coming and going. And if you watch very carefully where they're coming from and going to, you will come up with the same answer that you came up with mental forms. Nowhere. Nothing. Formless. Don't know. This, for most people, frankly, you can only truly experience for yourself with a good deal of meditation. And a lot of meditative practice is designed to do this. It's designed to quiet the mind, to calm the mind, to uh, release those mental thought forms that keep constructing a world, naming things, to at least be able to detach from them, as Meister Eckhart says, and to just experience things as they are without constantly placing them into some sort of imaginary world that your mind has created. So in the discussion of thought, we can start to see now how and why meditation is so important in mystical traditions and always so stressed. It's so that you can experience for yourself something that normally is being suppressed, so to speak, because of all this 
pre-programmed form and thought that's going on. Meditation is a way for you to verify for yourself whether what mystics say are true. It's not a different set of instructions in the sense of construct a different world. It's a set of instructions in a certain sense that counters this compulsive following of instructions you've received from your culture. The instruction is basically one instruction. Stop. You know, instead of keep creating, 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 just says stop for a minute. Stop and look. Okay. We talked a little bit about the difference between thought forms and sensory forms, or we started to get to it, when we said uh, this idea of will. Several of you thought that you willed these thought forms. And obviously, we cannot will sensory forms into our consciousness. Whereas I can sit down here and I can wheel a Cadillac as a mental thought form, and I can see it. Chartreuse Cadillac with foxtails and whatever. But try as I might, still one isn't appearing in my driveway. There's still that old uh, yellow Datsun out there that's crumbling away. So this is a big distinction between thought form and sensory form, we think. There's several things about it. Right off the bat, is it a decisive distinction? How much do we really will the mental forms that appear and disappear in our mind, this constant stream of mental forms? Earlier this morning, we did a little meditation, and anybody who's done any little meditation uh, trying to keep their attention focused on something like the breath is going to discover how little will is involved in the formation of thought forms, truly speaking. Most of them, there's no willing at at all. They just keep rolling around. Coming and going, an endless stream of them. Second of all, while we cannot will a Cadillac to appear in the sensory fields of consciousness, it is interesting, we will physical objects to move around, don't we? I will this arm to raise. Now watch this. I'm going to make a scientific prediction. When I count to five, this arm is going to raise. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> Amazing, isn't that? I, I, I can will this whole body to move around. And through this, I can will other things to move. I can will this arm to move, to raise up. I can will it to move forward. I can will it to contact this cup, and I can keep pushing. But lo and behold, I'm pushing the cup. I guess, in terms of magnitude, the strongest example of this is the ability, unfortunately, to will the destruction of a whole city by dropping a bomb, one bomb. How much power is in thought when we look at it in terms of the sensory world? Tremendous power. The atom bomb comes from the minds of scientists thinking up thought forms. Somewhere along the line, it gets translated into physical reality, what we call physical reality. It gets translated into sensory field, and it changes it all, for better or worse. In fact, we don't even have to think about the atomic bomb, mm -hmm. just our lives in Eugene. 
how many sensory forms do we live with that have been shaped by what we call human will? This house, pictures, the couch, electricity, light, refrigerators, cars, stoves. We are surrounded by form that has been shaped by thought, will, and then manifested into sensory form. Is there really such a great distinction between being able to will thought forms and not will sensory forms? Or is it just a question of degree here? Is there a qualitative difference or is it just a quantitative difference? Ask yourselves that. Investigate that. Ultimately, you might want to investigate this question of what do we mean when we really will? This is a very difficult one to investigate, I tell you. One way to start doing this is to watch very carefully how you make decisions. Where do decisions come from? Do you actually make a decision or is it more like you described? Is it something that pops into your head? Do you just suddenly know what you're going to do? Or is there some, some thing there that you can find that says, I make a decision? You look for that one. That's very subtle. In the uh, intermediary teachings of the great tradition, it's often expressed this way. Just as your mind or your power of imagination creates the thought forms out of the formless consciousness, so God creates sensory form out of formless consciousness. But that's really just an intermediary teaching. If we ask the final question here, what is the difference between your consciousness, quote yours, and God's consciousness? We will begin to get to the core of this. How many consciousnesses have you experienced? Going back to the way we set up defining it, it's like this blackboard was a field of consciousness. Do you see what I mean? That field out of which these forms come from. Mm -hmm. How many of us has anybody experienced? One. One. Has anybody ever experienced more than one? No, I mean, everything that I experience is based on, on my consciousness. So you can only experience this one consciousness. Yes. How many of you experienced? Me? Yeah. Um, just one. Just one. <laughs> now, let's take a, a poll here, a scientific poll. How many of you experienced? Trees? Just one. It's amazing. Everybody's only experienced one consciousness. How many consciousnesses could there be? Nobody's experienced more than one. And I can guarantee your consciousness is like my consciousness. The amount of consciousnesses could be infinite. Well, they, I mean, we could say they could be, but how many of you experienced? Go ask everybody around here. Nobody's ever experienced more than one consciousness. Why should we posit infinite consciousnesses when it's totally beyond anybody's experience? Why not posit one consciousness? And let's talk about that. When you talk about my consciousness and your consciousness, let's say there were two consciousnesses here, right? Okay. Now, where would yours end and mine begin? <laughs> I mean, maybe... Where? About, about right where your foot is there? <laughs> well, where? Um, <coughs> Maybe it it's my one consciousness is creating this whole situation in this room. And if my one consciousness is all that exists, then all these other consciousnesses that I've created are a part of my consciousness too. 
But you haven't created any other consciousness unless you've experienced many consciousness. Well, my consciousness. consciousness is this experience right here. And this experience has each individual consciousness. Whoa, 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 whoa. So, so maybe all of these consciousness in this room is part of my consciousness because it's my experience. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. But let's then get to the real, let's just jump to the crux of the matter. When you talk about yours, you talk about your conscience. Who is this your, you? <coughs> what is that? <laughs> That's like asking me what, what is my existence. I, I, yeah. just, I don't know. I'm hoping that someday I'll know. <laughs> ah, this is wonderful. Look, she doesn't know. Why doesn't she know? When you go look, what's there? When I go look for what? The, the eye that has the consciousness. What's there? I yeah. don't know. It's just my experience, who I am, the memories of everything that I've experienced. Okay, we have consciousness and forms, right? Memories are forms, experiences uh -huh. are forms, right? I don't know. The eye that I'm, that I'm talking about when I say me, I, you, um, I guess the eye that, that I think of is, is all based on thought. Boundaries. Boundaries. Right. Sure. We Look, we all know what this means. I and you, or they, they're relative words that float around depending on context. And they refer to different forms in consciousness. And we know how to manipulate these instructions so that we can all follow the instructions. If I say, would you uh, mind getting me some tea? Especially because I'm gesturing at you. That's part of our language. Everybody in the room doesn't rush up and get tea, including myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> So we know how to follow those instructions. The verbal name refers to a mental thought, which refers to a form of distinction in consciousness. There are many forms in consciousness, many forms of distinction. We've all experienced that. We've never experienced anything more than one consciousness. Our bodies are like that tree. Our bodies are like that tree, exactly. So when you investigate some eye, do you ever find anything other than forms? Forms, incidentally, which come and go in consciousness. You can't answer that question because as soon as you try and put words to it, you put forms on something that you can't. This is why, this is why, as long as you have any attachment to any image or idea, you cannot see what? The divine unity, as Meister Eckhart described it. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. The unity, the one consciousness. So this is true. But don't just say, well, you can't do anything about it. That won't get you anywhere. It's your own grappling with it and investigation for yourself that will perhaps reveal what is beyond form to directly experience that. Now, notice this carefully, though. <laughs> if there's only one consciousness and all forms... Uh, both sensory and mental, are produced by the power of imagination of this one consciousness, then our experience of an objective reality out there, apart from this consciousness, and the multiplicity of cells, as though there were many consciousnesses, is somehow false. It's a false perception. Now, if we understood the real nature of form, it wouldn't be a problem. But how are we going to then become again aware of this formlessness? The trick is to ignore, for a time, 
the form in order to recognize, recognize, break that word down, recognize something we know basically, we know because that's what we are, this formless consciousness, to recognize this consciousness. This is why there's such an emphasis in many mystical traditions in the beginning to turn away from the world. Turning away from the world, not being distracted by every form that comes up in your consciousness, not running after this and that and this and that, grasping and seizing. Lao Tzu says, only when it is cut are there names. And as soon as there are names, one ought to know that it's time to stop. Knowing when to stop, one can be free from danger. This is a mysterious little verse, if anybody's read the Tao Te Ching. Let's go through that, see if we can understand this better. Only when it is cut are there names. Names don't arise unless there's form. They're based on form. Form comes by distinction, by cutting, by making a distinction in this formless consciousness. Now, listen carefully. As soon as there are names, one ought to know that it is time to stop there's no hint in here there's anything wrong with naming. There's anything wrong with form. But we go farther. We give to form a reality that it does not have. We give to form an existence that it does not have apart from that which was uncut. We should have stopped just at recognizing formlessness and form. But we've gone farther. Knowing when to stop, one can be free from danger. One can be free from what? The danger of falling into delusion. The danger of falling into delusion that these forms are ultimately real. And when we fall into that delusion, that is what produces our fear and our suffering and our greed and our grasping and everything else. That's why it's dangerous. Lao Tzu, you know, and these mystics, they're not just some sort of spaced-out poets, you know, making up fancy things. These are instructions. Not instructions to create a world, but instructions to see through the world of form. Once consciousness itself recognizes what form is, I mean, really, that, that they are made, produced out of this power of imagination that is a power inherent in consciousness, the world of form ceases to be a problem. Mystical uh, teachings are not anti-world in the sense that there is some sort of ultimate problem with the world. They're not dualistic. They're, there are religious interpretations that are quite dualistic, where the world is bad and is separate from God and all that. That's never the teaching of mysticism, although in the, mysticism there's a strong early set of instructions trying to wean you from this attachment to the world. But ultimately, what is the world? What's well, nothing but forms of consciousness, forms of God, forms of Tao. It's not forms of anything else. Ananda Moyamai says this beautifully. She says, Where man is ever pure, enlightened, free, eternal, there the nature of the name and the nature of the form and the diverse waves of divine moods, inspirations and raptures stand revealed. In him should one become engrossed, lost, affixed, immersed, stripped of everything, 
and then this whole world will be seen as the outer expression of the inner reality, as the one himself, the field of his creative activity. Mm. Beautiful, huh? So, that was a little introduction to the nature of thought as it's seen from a mystic's point of view. And the purpose of this was not to give you a set of instructions to construct a new world of form, a different world of form, but a set of instructions to investigate for yourselves the world of form that you have constructed and believe in as being real. And this is the whole essence of mysticism. No one can communicate to you the absolute truth for a very simple reason. The absolute truth is formless. And every time we communicate in language, we are giving each other instructions to create more form. So the whole mystical path is the opposite of that. It's returning, if you like, to that source from which all these forms sprang. Finding your way back. That's it for this morning. <laughs> I'm going to take this stuff off. We can still talk for me.